Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always is... Catherine! And we're back this week to talk about one that's... I don't know, I I guess it sort of still meets our Failure Peace mission, mostly because I feel like this is a film that not enough people have seen. Um, and that is 2018's Panos Cosmatos directed Mandy, starring the inimitable... And somehow back on the rise, Nick Cage. Um, so this is, uh, I'll be honest, one of my favorite films of the last five years or so. Um, so I'll come right out, you know, right as we're getting started and say this is unequivocally a recommend from me. Um, but we are going to talk a little bit about what makes it so and why this may have been a film that sort of evaded people's you know, filmic radar. It was a very uh, small release. We you know, obviously had some great indie buzz. Uh, I know the Red Letter Media guys talked about it uh, way back in the day, and I think Jay was was a big fan of of what this film was doing. Mike a little bit less so, if I remember right. But you know, this got pretty decent reviews. Um, I think you know quite a few people discovered it um, in, in sort of its video on demand form. But uh, it had a very, very limited theatrical release and, and didn't really, you know, make much buzz there. But I don't know if anybody was expecting it to, you know. That's kind of the idea. Um, so a couple of interesting things. This is produced by Spectre Vision, which is Elijah Wood's film production company. Mm. So he is actually one of the listed producers on this, much like he was for another film that Cage put out, if not this same year, the year after, which was the... Richard Stanley adaptation of Color Out of Space. Um, you know, Elijah Wood is an, a sort of old school horror fan by all accounts. Um, I think some of his film choices have certainly demonstrated that. We talked about him with The Last Witch Hunter, which, you know, I don't know if Elijah Wood would have taken a film like that if he wasn't interested in these types of genre pictures. But uh, so Mandy is, is a unique little thing. Um, visually stunning i'll go ahead and say i think it's yeah. one of the most sort of visually arresting films that you're going to find um even attempting to be some sort of like mainstream film uh it's it's um psychedelic it's you know drugged out it's the color palette is very much influenced by 80s vapor wave which of course in 2018 with things like Stranger Things was, you know, all the rage in terms of its, you know, visual composition of elements. But uh, Mandy sort of elevates so much of that to the next level. Uh, so any initial thoughts on Mandy before we start, you know, breaking her down? Um, I loved all the bisexual lighting. I love, I love bisexual lighting in anything, mm -hmm. photos, movies. I just, you put that, that red and that blue and that purple kind of vibe. I love it movie just looked great. Yes. This is, a again, a sort of uncompromising film in terms of its visual presentation. They knew exactly what they wanted and, and seemingly were somehow able to execute, even on a, a relatively minimal budget. Uh, this was a, a $6 million budgeted film, and I think it looks like a much more expensive movie mm -hmm. but you know they made great great choices uh so a couple of interesting you know sort of trivia facts if we if we want to go there uh this is directed by panos cosmatos who uh also directed a film that i believe is on hbo max right now 
called Beyond the Black Rainbow, Mm -hmm. which has a lot of similar elements. It too is sort of a psychedelic um, infused journey into the mind, right? It's, it's uh, about an experimenter who's running experiments on a patient and, and sort of the way that the world sort of, I don't know, almost folds in on itself underneath the weight of these individuals. And uh, it's a beautiful film. It's a difficult watch in some ways. So is this. Uh, so I guess that is one thing that we can, can sort of toss out there. This is not an easy film to watch. There are, are intense scenes of torture and abuse um, this, this is not a, a fun romp in the traditional sense, but it is an incredibly satisfying film experience. Um, so, uh, you know, so Cosmatos, uh, is the son of George P. Cosmatos, mm-hmm. who, if you're a big fan of 1980s, 1980s action films, that's a name that you'll probably recognize. Um, he's Probably most well known, he is the he is the listed director for Tombstone. Mm-hmm. Um, now there is a lot of background there. Apparently, Tombstone kind of ran into director problems during the shoot. The director left. Cosmatos came in to be the director, but supposedly, uh, like Kurt Russell, actually directed the last half of that movie. Again, nobody's confirmed that it's been heavily hinted at, but, um, the, you know, he the, directed Rambo first Blood thing part is, two, is he you directed know. Cobra. He did. He was one of the, the eighties Stallone collaborators. Yeah. Um, he directed Rambo two, which I think if you're going to watch Rambo movies, Rambo two is the best Rambo movie in the way that you think Rambo movies operate. The first Rambo movie is a very, very dark and deep study of a fractured individual from the Vietnam War. There's like one person that dies in that movie. But then Rambo 2 is where things become Rambo, right? Where he's murdering people, you know, the stuff that got parodied in UHF. Mm -hmm. You know, he's just shooting down dozens and dozens of people. Um, So that was a Cosmatos joint, also from a script by James Cameron, of course. Um, but he also directed Cobra. He did another underrated gym that I intend to talk about on this podcast at some point in the near future. And that is uh, 1989's Leviathan. Mm, that's a great one. Um, one of the, the many uh, people trapped underwater with strange thing it's, uh, movies it's no that came Cobra, around but, you know, you during know, that it time is period. Really, it's a great movie. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, and it's one of the few that actually had uh, another Peter Weller starring turn. Um, uh, and so you know, another great movie. So his son, Panos Cosmatos is also now directing. And, and this is his, I think second feature after beyond the black rainbow. He's done some short films and other things too, but this is, you know, his, his next big swing. Um, I think most people, if they discovered this film without sort of seeking it out, it was probably because it stars Nick, uh, Nicolas Cage. Um, so I guess, should we talk about Nicolas, like what Nicolas Cage has been up to for the last decade or so? Because well, it's it's kind of interesting just, where he's been. I just like, I would like to, I mean, take any opportunity. We've we've had Nicolas Cage movies on this podcast before. Um, mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage is unironically one of my favorite actors of all time 
And I have to say, unironically, because I feel like when people talk about him, they're thinking of of memes. Yes. Um, even Nicolas Cage himself is yes. incredibly aware of how and his actions have been and continue to be memed. I think he's a bit bewildered by it. Yeah. He doesn't really understand the, the purpose of but it. it but he appreciates, <laughs> yeah, he, he appreciates the fact that it is something that has kept him within the public consciousness. But he is. And, and connects him with He people. is yeah. genuinely, unironically one of my favorite actors. Because I love that he emotes. I feel like so many of our, our highly respected actors that we think of as like ooh actors mm -hmm. i feel like their performances lean toward understated and we've we've had this yes, big a lot of restraint this big yeah. trend toward understated performances like you know i'm thinking like uh clive owen type of performances like sure. like children of men type of stuff and i love that i mean he clive owen's genius of course but i love that nicolas cage if there's a scene where you need him to emote and have like an extreme emotion, he gives it and it's great. And every yeah. movie that he's in, I can almost be guaranteed that something is going to happen that I have never seen before. He'll do something <laughs> uh, highly likely that I've yeah. not seen. in highly a movie. Likely. And I just love that. I love that his movies are almost like a treat because I, I don't know what to expect. I don't know. Um, I don't know what his performance will be like. And I, and again, we said this the last time we talked about him. This dude is an Oscar winner. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, Nick, Nicolas Cage is not a... <sighs> he's not a bad he, actor. No, no. And I, I think that that's part of the unfortunate reality of where he was when he was making films like Mandy, is that he had adopted this I'll take any project sort of approach to his career which we can talk about briefly why he did that but in essence he had sort of fallen out of favor favor with the traditional hollywood system you know primarily disney like i, I don't think a lot of people realize that disney was the primary backbone and architect of and jerry bruckheimer as well of of nicholas cage's sort of ascension to i mean i guess what we'll call action blockbuster mm -hmm. fame right you know he had uh, Gone in 60 Seconds remake. He had Con Air. He had um, wow. the National Treasure Con series, Air. of Whoa. course. National Treasure. Um, you know, Love like, <laughs> you know, the, the the 2000s were very kind to Nick Cage. But in, in a terms very, of very his commercial projects and success. Way. Right. And, and he was not able in a lot of ways to really connect with some of his best skills. Right. And so what we saw were these sort of shadows or shades of Nicolas Cage. Right. The things that that he needed to do to accomplish these very shallow or oftentimes shallow roles. And, you know, and, and he developed a presence that worked for him. He developed a, a you know, a, a sort of person that he could display that people said, like, oh, that's the guy. Um, but he's always had weird projects, right? He's all, you know, for every national treasure, there was always a wicker man, right? There was always, mm -hmm. you know, for, for every, you know, gone in 60 seconds, there was a bad Lieutenant too, right? Like he was always sort of, you know, seeking out projects that allowed him to dip into that more, you know, sort of deep emotional well. And I think that, um, 
he didn't get a lot of roles like that for a long time. So around 2014, the reason why Nicolas Cage even appears in Mandy, although, you know, I'm sure we can dispute it. Uh, in, around 2014, Nicolas Cage, uh, as many actors who, you know, are flamboyant and spend their money flamboyantly do, uh, he ran afoul of the tax man. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the government came calling. Questions were asked. <laughs> Uh, apparently, Cage's long-term accountant had been, he re, he doesn't really talk about this in public, so it's hard to know, but it seems like his accountant had been skimming off the top and just wildly mismanaging Cage's fortune. And so he found himself in tax trouble. Um, obviously, we've seen this happen with other high-profile actors. Uh, Wesley Snipes, very publicly, I think he even went to jail for a little bit. Um, for his uh, tax crimes. But Nicolas Cage uh, apparently decided that he would work to pay off the entirety of his tax liability. And so starting in 2014, we see a significant uptick in what we can generally call I'll do this for the money roles uh, from Nick Cage. So we've got things like The Dying of the Light, uh, a little action film. We've got uh, the Left Behind remake where he plays the pilot, which <laughs> is a weird, weird one to watch. But, uh, you know, we it's it's, you know, he makes it somewhat watchable. It's still a terrible film. But, you know, you know, films like Pay the Ghost, you know, you ever watch Pay the Ghost? <laughs> no, nobody's seen Pay the Ghost. Um, his most prolific years under this, you know, I'll take the roles so that I can pay off my tax liability. Um, probably 2017. I think he had seven movies come out in 2017. Um, all of them ones. I'm not going to say all of them bad. Like he's every year he's got something interesting. All right. So 2017, for example, he had mom and dad, which was a fun little horror, you know, a horror Mm -hmm. movie. Um, you know, that was good. In 2018, he's got Mandy. 2019, he had Color Out of Space. Um, you know, so he's he's picking interesting films. He's not just, you know, he, he's not at the geezer pleaser phase that we found Bruce Willis in toward his, the end of his, of his career. His favorite superhero is Ghost Rider, so we know he has great taste mm-hmm. in everything. Uh, and Superman, he <laughs> got love to Ed, yeah, finally he Superman. He got to finally play Superman in the Teen Titans Go movie. Wonderful. Um, he was the voice actor there, and he did a great job. Uh, my kids love that movie; they watch it uh, constantly. Uh, of course, he played Spider-Man Noir in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which he was also great in. Uh, it just, you know, so he wasn't, he was doing, he was working a lot. He was taking projects that a more ho- high profile actor might not have taken. But what it did, and what I think was really positive, is that it opened up Nick Cage to be available to independent and small film directors to say, hey, we need somebody. We need somebody great. Who can we get? And Nicolas Cage suddenly was on the table for those projects. And what that has produced now are some of Cage's most interesting films. Um, You know, as much as I love a good National Treasure movie, and I do. It's not making the best use of his talent. No, I mean, that's that's a sort of flattened version of Nicolas Cage. Um, You know, one of the movies from this time period that came out uh, and just recently really is uh, Willie's Wonderland. I don't know if you've seen this one yet. Mm -mm. Uh, I would advise seeking it out. 
uh, so I mean, I'm sure you're aware of the Five Nights at Freddy's oh, yeah. franchise, right? Animated monsters and oh, yeah. showbiz pizza come to life, try to kill you. Um, Willy's Wonderland is that. I think I but saw Nicholas, something about this. Yes. Nicholas Cage is a drifter. He comes into town. They send him into this place to clean. And the entirety of the film, the whole film, is shots of Nicolas Cage doing relatively mundane janitorial duties interspersed with him beating the ever-loving shit out of an animatronic creature. I like it. And, uh, and drinking so drinking energy drinks. That was his like one request. He's like, I need energy drinks. We're like, well, you can't. And so there's a lot of really long shots of Nicolas Cage just chugging energy drinks. I love it. And it's, it's wonderful. Uh, it's terrible, but it's wonderful. And so out of this time period, uh, we actually get some really interesting Cage projects. We get Mandy, we get Pig, uh, a recent release, which is also fantastic. Uh, we got smaller films like David Gordon Green's Joe, which was is probably one of his last like touching on studio projects before he entered this phase in his career. But what we can take some you know comfort and potential joy in is that uh, apparently, as of October of last year, Nicolas Cage is fully paid up with the U.S. government, and Yay. he is living a he is living a much better and more financially stable life now. He lives in Vegas with his uh, very young wife and because their new child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, but seems in a good place. There was a really good GQ article. Uh, his most recent film, The uh, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, wherein he plays himself. Uh, apparently it was his first sort of like post tax man project. And uh, it seems like a very sort of psychologically self-aware and healthy film uh, for somebody like Nicholas Cage to make. So, you know, we say all that to say that Mandy may not have existed, um, at least in this form and with, with this level of excellence, if not for the, the, the troubles, right? The Nicholas Cage troubles, and I'm very, very thankful for it because Same. I think Cage brings something to this film that I'm I'm really not sure any other actor could have brought to this part. Um, so let's let's break down what Mandy is. Let's not you know sort of beat around the bush because again I'm assuming that a lot of people you know probably haven't seen this and aren't really aware of it. But Mandy uh, is is really a byproduct of of the John Wick revenge thriller revival. Uh, because that's what this is too. Um, it is about a, a man named Red, who is a uh, lumberjack. I guess uh, he works in the logging industry somewhere up north, uh, a place that we're we're told is uh, only is the Shadow Mountains, right? And uh, there he lives with the eponymous Mandy, who is his his love interest, his girlfriend. They live together in a awesome cabin in Made the middle of, of nowhere. It's all windows, man. It's it's so good. It's all like scrap windows just, just sort of nailed together. It's great. It's a wonderful visual. Um, and a wonderful metaphor for sort of the openness of their life and how they're trying to like... Because both these people are broken. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of the, you know, the first 20 minutes of this movie is really establishing that both Red and Mandy for various reasons and to various backgrounds and, and histories, both of these individuals are are sort of internally shattered and they have found each other and for some reason have found some comfort in the relationship that they have. Uh, they're not successful, right? Mandy works as a gas station attendant, right? So, um, 
but but they have this connection with each other. They love each other. The opening scenes of this movie are sort of just very lyrical and beautiful. Um, uh, Mandy here is played by Andrea Riseborough, who I may refer to at times as uh, sort of discount Tilda Swinton. <laughs> Because uh, that's sort of the vibe she gives off. Uh, in this movie, you've seen Andrea Riceburn a bunch of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I don't mean that as an insult. Like it's just no. you know, she has that same carriage to herself. She's sort of if I, when I think of Tilda Swinton, I almost I, I think of sort of an angel. Uh, not just because of Constantine, although maybe a little bit because of Constantine, but it, more in her her just ethereal quality right she has this sort of otherworldly appearance and she has these um she has a sort of captivating on-screen presence that again is like Nicolas Cage difficult to replicate and uh, in this film especially but even in some of her other performances Andrea Riseborough seems to to approximate that to a certain bit this one I think Cosmatos films her in such a way she almost appears alien at times like she yeah. is just she she seems pulled from a sort of cosmic landscape, uh, which is also intentional, I'm sure, uh, because Mandy's primary hobby is doing fantasy art mm -hmm. of the type that you might have seen on, you know, heavy metal album covers in the 1980s. 1980s paperbacks. You know? Right. Yeah. You know, your, your 80s fantasy paperbacks. Uh, your reprints of Conan, that kind of stuff. She she paints that and and. Um, is just a, you know, a phenomenal artist. And, and I feel like Cosmatos in, in arranging and designing this film, you know, he, his inspirations are pretty obvious, right? Um, he's obviously pulling from the world of, of heavy metal. He's pulling from fantasy and, and he's blending all of these complex elements together, right? Into a single sort of visual stew that is, is really, really unique. All right. I, I mean, in the years since Mandy, I've never really seen anybody get close to doing it quite this well. Maybe something like, um, oh, there was that Robert Pattinson movie a couple of years ago that sort of had a psychedelia quality to it. But mm -hmm. in any case, like, um, in any case, like, it's just, it's a really sort of, nicely designed top to bottom visual series of visual inspirations. And he, and he sort of pays them off and sets them up in the film. Like there's a reason why the film looks this way. Um, you know, not only sort of Mandy's presence in the film, but also Cage's love for her, the way that she sort of changed his view of the world, etc. So um, the main thrust of the film is really about these two characters and then their lives being invaded by a, sort of ridiculous cult leader. What is it? The children of the new dawn or something. something yeah. Um, I think that was it. <laughs> something along those lines. Uh, it's, but it's a guy played by Linus Roach, who most people may know as uh, Bruce Wayne's dad, uh, Thomas Wayne in the, uh, in Batman begins. Right. Um, but uh, he's, you know, he's a British actor. He's wonderful. And he's very good in this. Really funny in this. Like, I don't know if I was supposed <laughs> to be laughing. But I kind of think so. Like he's so ridiculous, but he is, I, I think Cosmatos may be saying something about, you know, cause this is, this is a film that was a product of a certain political era in, in the United States. And, and I think there's something being said here about a charismatic leader. That's actually an idiot, 
but is empowered by people who believe in him. Uh, yeah, right? I mean, like, like, but at like the same he wouldn't time, have they, any power if these people didn't believe in him. His little cult looks so pathetic. Where it's like, wow, it's you're true. the leader yeah, of this bunch. So awesome. Yeah. That's good for you, man. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, this these two old people and a couple of young, dumb idiots. And, um, <laughs> Whose it's, mouths it's a, are hanging open through the entire movie. Entire film. Whole film. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's just ridiculous. But we, we'll, you know, get into some of those specifics later. But there's just... There's also an unsettling quality to the entire film that I think is really, really interesting. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the way it's shot and framed. Everything's, and I don't know if you picked up on this, but everything's slightly off center in mm. this film. Um, you know, Cosmatos does very little center framing of elements in this movie, which, um, you know, it, it's not uncommon, right? It's, it's normal to create visual tension in a frame by having your characters, you know, stand off one of your primary, you know, three, you know, vertical lines and stuff like that's not weird, but this film is just sort of slightly off center in most of its visual presentation. And I really feel like that communicates through, but so this, um, you know, red and Mandy, their lives aren't perfect, but they've found again, some kind of solace in one another and they're invaded by this this you know group of cultists mostly because the leader played by roach um sees her on the side of the road and and wants her right he's like i i want her you bring her to me so they um hire these like coked out lsd fueled monsters they're, they're cannibal uh, like bikers a biker gang who take liquid lsd cannibal bikers yeah exactly in and, peanut and butter so they jars. In peanut butter <laughs> jars, right? The, chug it. I mean, that's where you would do it if you think about it. You know, it's everybody's got a good peanut butter jar laying around oh, yeah. for your liquid LSD. Um, but so um this invasion then sets red on a course of vengeance. And and that's really sort of the latter half of the film. And and obviously when you've got Nicolas Cage, you're, you're going to lean into that pretty hard. And, and this film does. Uh, so that's where a lot of the, the sort of difficult scenes come into play. Right. Um, but it has a very kind of, well, like one of the things I love about somebody like Stephen King, when he sets up his villains is one of the major things you want to see for the rest of that book is how that villain is undone. Right. You know, it's coming. Right. You know that that villain is going to get their just desserts because it's a Stephen King book and he sort of always kind of follows that tack. But the question is always where, how and how badly. And and that's kind of where Mandy goes. But, uh, you know, some other things worthy of praise. Uh, the soundtrack for this film is phenomenal. Um, so good. Uh, this is one by Johan Johansson. He was an Icelandic composer who unfortunately passed away last year um, and uh, had done a lot of work with Denis Villeneuve uh, on his films like Prisoners and Arrival. Uh, just a fantastic composer. And this, I think, may be one of you know his top, top two or three soundtracks. It's truly phenomenal. Like a movie budgeted at this scale should not have a soundtrack this good. It just shouldn't, right? It should be a lot more well, like, you know, I would argue stock that synthesizer should, shit. But the film industry is broken. All movies should yeah. be this good and for this amount of money because this proves that it can be done. 
Yeah, I mean, if this is the kind of movie that somebody can make for $2 million, or $6 million, excuse me, um, although I assume a good chunk of that, like a major chunk of that are going to Cage and Riseboro. Like, I would think probably at least, unless they took, you know, just vastly reduced, you know, pay to do it, which is possible. Um, I would think that the vast majority of the budget went to securing those two actors more than anything else. Um, but, you know, for $6 million, this is a visually stunning, incredibly well-designed, fascinating revenge story starring one of the most reliably unhinged actors in Hollywood. And it's, it's just incredible. Like, it's a truly, truly, you know, monstrous work. Um you know, it's it's one of the movies that you see and go like, oh, that's right. Movies are art. Oh, oh right. Like, I forgot. <laughs> like, they're the the marriage of art and commerce. But this this is a film that both feels like and looks like art, which is is incredibly refreshing. Um, so, uh, that, the ba- again, the basic setup for Mandy, it's a revenge thriller. Nicolas Cage is wronged and he goes on an incredible journey of revenge through many terrible, terrible dangers in order to obtain said revenge. But um, I, I guess we'll get into spoilers a little bit unless you had anything else you wanted to add before we I'm ready jump to spoil. In. Let's spoil it. Spoil this film. Yeah. Um, it, again, it's, it's hard to overstate how much I like this movie. Um, I watched the movie most of the way through and then my partner was like, what are you watching? And I was like, it's Mandy. And he's like, I've never seen that. And he's like, oh, too bad. You're you're almost done. Maybe I'll watch it after. And I was like, I would gladly restart this movie and watch <laughs> the whole thing over again because I've enjoyed mm-hmm. it that much. And we did. <laughs> yeah, it's it's truly a remarkable thing. And it's one that I think bears up under repeated watchings, not because there's a twist, um, but because it's such an incredibly well-told story. And there are so many interesting visual elements that Cosmatos weaves into it that set up things for later. Um, it's, it's just a tightly visual film. And, I think it bears multiple watching so that you can sort of absorb the different elements of it, you know, in at different rates, right? New things occur, new elements pop out because there's so much visual information being shared in the film at all times, which I, I really love. Uh, it's just, there's, there's complexity in every frame, which is so, so rare in, you know, modern sort of naturalistic filmmaking, filmmaking, which one of the things I love about this is that this is a movie that's not trying to be the real world at any point, right? It's connected to our world. It is driven by the same concerns that we have, but it is not our world. It is wholly self-contained and wholly self-constructed. Uh, I've seen some people compare Cosmatos after this film to someone like Kubrick, yeah. Right. Because Kubrick built the universes of his films. They were not the real world. Right. Especially you look at something like The Shining. Right. The Shining is a is some sort of weird alternate reality where these characters live that's loosely connected to our own, but it exists for the purpose of the film and the film only. And this movie kind of does the same thing. And I, I just adore it. 
um, you know, the chapter headings, the sweet fonts. Uh, this uses a crown title font that I actually used for some font design stuff that I did back in the day, and I love it. It's just, it's one of those movies that you watch it and it makes you remember how good movies can be right. Like, you know, in, in the absolutely overloaded marketplace of film right now. And that's exactly what it is. It is overloaded with content, lots and lots of low and mid tier content. I'll put it that way. Like the high level stuff is still sort of at coming out at the same rate, but you know, like you go to someplace like Netflix or Hulu or Paramount plus or whatever. And there are just hundreds of movies so that are these just, just, you know, mid-tier quality, made for nothing, thrown out there as quickly as they can. And then you watch something like this and you're like, it's like a breath of fresh air, right? It's yeah. it's like being, you know, it's being at Six Flags on a hot day and hitting one of the sprayers or something. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow. It's so well done. And uh, I don't know. Cosmatos is is a director to watch. He has another film in development. Uh, A24 finally woke up and we're like, oh, we should we should probably be working with this guy. Yeah, <laughs> this guy seems like he's right up our alley, dudes. Um, so his next film, I think, is called Necrogasm. Necrocosm. It's called Necrocosm. Thank you. I want it to be called Necrogasm. That would be a great uh, title. Just because that sounds that sounds pretty fun. Um, but yeah, Necrocosm uh, seems like it is also going to push, you know, those boundaries. In a lot of ways, you know, speaking of like A24 projects, I, I think one of the things I really like about Cosmatos is that he's a less restrained Alex Garland. Although yeah. apparently Alex Garland's new movie, Men, is, is completely nuts. Um, which I really, really want to see it. Have you seen anything about that yet? I have, and I, I definitely want to see it. Yeah, like Rory Kinnear playing every male character in the film just <laughs> sounds insane and awesome. But in any case, like, but I, I feel like Garland's filmmaking technique is is sort of on par with that. Um, a little bit more budget, obviously, like he usually has more money to play with than this. But just the the color palettes the the sort of sense of framing and design you know garland's got a lot of the same things going on but cosmatos is willing to push it further than i think somebody like garland is who's a much more you know sort of embedded in traditional filmmaking kind of guy garland will always push in terms of story beats you know and, and the story complexities but not necessarily the visual side of it whereas cosmatos i think is willing to do both so just very you know visually stunning Again, the the scene right at the beginning of the film when Cage and Riseboro are laying in bed together and just the colors are swirling on top of them, right? Almost as if they took multicolored filters and just were sort of rotating them over the lights as they were laying there. I mean, I'm sure it was a, something done in post, but it's it's just such an ethereal thing. And he brings those elements back to the film over and over and over again to increase this sort of like otherworldly quality of it. Uh, it's it's truly remarkable. Mm. Um, so I guess let's let's break it down. So the film opens uh, with some really interesting shots of you know big logging uh, wherever they're at. You know, there's a, a really cool you know Nicholas Cage with chainsaw moments and stuff like that. Um, but ultimately, he comes back home. There's a little bit of a radio. There's some radio stuff from Reagan. So we kind of establish that this is the 80s 
and then he's home. And again, we already mentioned the house, but the house is incredible. It's, it looks like a sort of like, like a foraged home. Like they just found, you know, windows and scrap wood and they built this cabin out of it. Um, but it has, it's so great. Cause it, it just is, it's all about openness. Right. And I really, you know, in watching it, it felt like there was something being said about these characters and how, how closed off and afraid these characters are, but yet they live in this house of windows, right? They're totally exposed. Um, cause there's that great scene cage comes in at the beginning and she's, you know, painting or something with her back to the door and he comes in and he's, he's very vocally says, knock, knock. And she still freaks out. She's like, yeah. Oh my God, you scared me so badly. And it's like, you live in a home of windows, right? Like everything is exposed, but yet you're terrified. Um, just a, a remarkable, you know, sort of lovely visual metaphor for how, where these characters are and what they're experiencing. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of really good scenes um, of Cage and Riseboro just having conversation, laying on the couch together. It's very, it's very it's otherworldly, but it's wholesome. I like this mm-hmm. kind of wholesomeness. Yeah, it's and it's Cosmatos realizing that, you know, we're about to go somewhere very dark. We need to we need to kind of love these characters a little bit or at least understand them and identify with them. And so there's there's really a lot going on in terms of the production design. Uh, Riseboro wears a lot of uh, you know metal band T-shirts. Black Sabbath. She's reading uh, a novel made up for the film, but you know it's a it's a fantasy novel. There's that great shot of her sitting in their bed, which is like a it's like pushed out into the yard, and there's windows on all sides. Again, not the place for two people who are really uncomfortable with their lives yeah. to sleep, but it's just this gorgeous thing. And she's sitting in there. Um, it, it's, it's awesome. But then everything sort of comes to a head that next day. I think she's walking to work or something and she's passed by the children of the new dawn and they're like van RV thing. Um, and the whole thing is shot in red and not, not like, you know, typical movie red, like deep, blood red yeah and it's it sets such a tone for what's happening and what's going on it's nonsensical in terms of the film that's you know there's no lighting condition in the natural world that would produce that effect but it clearly establishes the danger of these individuals uh the risk that is involved in them coming close to mandy and red and then of course you know the the inevitable fallout from this seemingly innocuous interaction. Um, again, I, I love the way he shoots it here. The The camera is meant to sort of be in the seat of the van as it passes Riseboro, but it, he slows everything down on the Riseboro side. The whole thing's not in slow motion. It's just as Riseboro is passing the van, everything slows. And again, he just emphasizes this otherworldly quality of her face and then sort of ends in a freeze frame, which is again, I don't, we don't see enough use of freeze frame in modern film anymore. We really don't. Um, and that of course sets up the section of the film referred to as children of the new dawn. Um, so where we're headed here is that this cult leader needs Mandy. Uh, he, he wants to have the sexy times with her. Um, 
so much so that he is absolutely and thoroughly possessed of that idea. Um, he's like freaking out and <laughs> losing his mind. Like, uh, you know, if I can't have her, I'll die. I mean, it's, it's every sort of excess that you've ever seen or heard about fanatical cult leaders. Yeah. Right? Just Jim Jones, Charles Manson, you know, anybody who has this kind of just unreasonable, unwieldy power, just absolutely, you know, unhinged over the edge. And we spend a lot of time with these folks, right? Like a shocking amount of time with them. But I f ultimately feel like that's good. At the t my first watch, I didn't want to. I was like, I don't want to spend time. I know they're bad. I don't want to spend time with them. I don't want to get to know them because I, I felt like we would we were going to get the typical thing where we see the villains so that we understand them. But that's absolutely not what Cosmatos is doing. No. He is building the case. He's building the argument for how desperately you want to see these people die. Yeah. Like every scene, and you hate them more. <laughs> And more, more and more right somehow it escalates like you're because you hate them immediately immediately <laughs> but, like but you just you just start hating them a lot more as it goes on right. like every it's, scene it's it, like these people suck not only these people are the worst not only are they evil they're dumb and i hate them <laughs> yeah it's it's sort of remarkable how how carefully he constructs that relationship and and these individuals but so, you know, they, they figure out where she works. Uh, and I've got to say they they do a lot with Riseboro in this scene because she works at this gas station. That's obviously like a, you know, a mom and pop operation. There's just an adding machine and the shelves are all terrible. Um, and, and, you know, she knows that something, Riseboro knows that something is wrong, but she's still trying to sort of hold on to this. Uh, everything's going to be okay. You know, I, but she's got this scar on her face, um, which I, I think is supposed to indicate she. I mean, the past trauma. The little conversation they have on the couch where she talks about her father beating a, a sack how to kill of starlings, starlings right? to death. That, yeah. to me, suggested that she's an abuse survivor, um, mm -hmm. maybe in several different contexts, and. You, and and because it's sort of positioned against all of these really mundane scenes of her with Cage, where they're just existing, and he's very protective and sort of nurturing, and they, you know, like them cuddling on the couch watching some shitty movie and eating dinner, like you can tell that he is he's a safety for her, or it mm -hmm. seems that way. Yeah, he's he's become a kind of rock for her and that you know sets up some things later because where this is all headed we don't have to belabor or beat around the bush is they kidnap mandy um the guy like plays an ocarina or something um the horn of abraxas <laughs> the horn of abraxas uh, which summons the drugged up cannibal bikers and they go and they kidnap mandy and these bikers probably are amazing they're like fucking Cenobites. I, yeah, that was sort of the, the thing that I went to as well. They are, for lack of a better term, they're, they're Hellraiser villains. Oh, I love it. And the design of them is good. I'm so glad that we never really see one in full lighting. Like they're all inside of this, you know, hazed out vaporwave, you know, type of stuff like, until later in the film. They're all but, like 
orc-voiced, drooling psychopaths. I just, I, I would join a biker gang if they looked that cool, <laughs> but they don't. It's, it's remarkable, and it's such a wild swing, because they didn't have to be that, right? But again, there's this, within the universe of this film, this is a thing that can happen to you. Right, like I really feel like it's Cosmatos insisting, like we're not in reality here, folks, and and so please, you need to let this go, and and they kind of reemphasize that in in some really key ways. So they're they're enlisted to you know kidnap Mandy and bring her to the cult leader. Of course, Nicolas Cage is involved. They're watching a Don Dohler movie. I'm pretty sure it's Laser Beast. <laughs> um, it looks like Laser Beast, but it's like an old you know bad you know shitty b movie that if you like shitty b movies you've definitely seen um and so you know they're they're just having an evening yeah. right like there's there's nothing special or unique about this setup it's just two people watching a movie eating some dinner trying to spend some time together and everything collapses around them all at once and it's this section of the film is probably one of the most harrowing of of all of them um but it comes down to they they bring mandy before the cult leader and he like and he whips it out and he's like check me this, out baby this you was know, the let's funniest do this. thing i've ever it's seen so funny it's when great she, when it's she so just says good. you made this yes and it's about you <laughs> <laughs> like it's just the flattest reaction to it because the song he plays her a song that he wrote because he's a failed folk musician he's a failed and folk the musician. song is yeah. so bad <laughs> it's the worst um you made this and and she calls him you. on it even though she's even though she's drugged up even though she's been you know prepared by the other women in the cult for reception by their dear and, and wonderful leader well i like, love she it because just... she wears all these heavy metal t-shirts and then he plays this mm. cheesy corny fucking folk song and she just yeah. starts laughing yeah like she <laughs> because, has like, zero why would interest she like in this that? <laughs> and uh, that's and again that's part of the great unification of the character is that you know she, this is not music that would appeal to her under any circumstances right never once and so like this guy is completely taken aback by by her reaction and you know he's expecting to be worshipped and she does the opposite it's so funny and it just enrages him it pushes him over the edge that he has been rejected by this woman um there's a lot of really interesting because she's again she's you know under the influence of whatever these drugs are some form of lsd we're not really told for sure but there's all this strange like blending of imagery. Like she sees a bit of herself in him and, and there's, there's all of this stuff back and forth that sort of reiterate just how it, sort of far gone it's everything it, is. It suggests that it's almost going to work that his, his magic that he's doing on her might work until the moment where she starts laughing at it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like all of it seems like we're headed to this inevitable, Oh God, he's, he's going to dominate her. And then she uh, she laughs at his penis. Um, it's just <laughs> and his just shitty bold song. Face. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's just so creepy and so creepily done because they're like all of the other cult members are just standing around watching. Like you know, this has happened to all of them, and 
it's 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 just it's incredible it's not what i expected i expected this to go a very different way and it just doesn't and that unfortunately leads to probably one of the most difficult scenes in the film a film a scene in which i had to remind myself that this was not real um and i don't know i so ultimately they they take her back to the cabin and like she's shaken this cult leader guy like he is he's like doesn't know what to do he's never had this happen before probably because he's preyed on you know morons and they've all just kind of fallen in line and then now he gets this woman who just refuses to kowtow to his abilities and so it it turns from a we're going to recruit this woman and i'm going to have sex with her into we're going to torture and kill her and this is this is really hard um this is a this may be the scene that you know again if you don't handle violence on film well this and this isn't like you know you know i mentioned john wick earlier this isn't like john wick violence where the guy just kind of falls over and rolls away you know yeah he's just been shot but it's like yeah don't worry about it um this is the violent and brutal burning of another human being and and they forced nicholas cage to watch to watch while he's bound both through the mouth and around the wrists in barbed wire Um, so he has like barbed wire in his mouth that he's been gagged with so so he's watching all of this there's nothing he can do he's forced to watch uh his his beloved uh die and be burned alive and Really, up until this point, this has not been Nicolas Cage's movie, right? The first half of this movie is is really Andrea Riseborough's movie, uh, as we establish Mandy and who she is and her importance, you know, in Nicolas Cage's little microcosm of a universe here. But after her death at the hands of the cult, now Nicolas Cage is is truly comes to the fore because Red up until this point is. He's basically wordless. He says very little. Um, he's just sort of there. Um, but now it's it's sort of Nicolas Cage's show. So they don't kill him, which is, you know, always mistake number one. Uh, you've already killed the girl. You might as well kill the guy, too. But they don't. They leave him. And uh, he is able to eventually work himself free. And he goes back into the house there's a, a just gut-wrenching when, scene when i said earlier that that, that nicholas cage emotes this is what i was thinking of this this scene yeah. when he goes back into the house i feel like a lot of other actors would have played this much more somber but he just starts screaming mm. and i love it i love that it's so incredible because if you just watch I mean, somebody burn the love of your life to death you would be screaming Yes, you would be uh, uncontrollably, um, and and it's so good. And, Nic- <laughs> and Nicholas Cage is is such putty in a director's hands. Like he has one of the things I love about Nick Cage is that, contrary to popular reports, by all accounts, Nick Cage, when it comes to acting, has no ego. He will do whatever is asked of him, and he will he will give his all every time. Yeah. 
right? Just in, in many ways, you know, I've heard people refer to him as the consummate actor because he has no boundaries. And so in this moment, as he goes back inside the home, after viewing the burned body of his beloved, he is, is naked from, well, he's not naked, but he's wearing like tidy whitey underwear. Uh, he has on this tiger t-shirt. He finds the t-shirt that she had been wearing. Um, the 44 that we saw him wear at the beginning of the film, which becomes his sort of costume for the remainder of it. Um, now we, we do need before his like huge freak out though, he does watch a little bit of TV and the cheddar goblin. We, must, we must mention the cheddar goblin. All hail cheddar goblin. Um, so again, this is supposed to be set during the eighties. Uh, and of course, you know, if as a child of the 1980s, both of us, you know, advertising in the 1980s this could have was been a fucking real. nightmare. You know, it, yeah, like, it was a fucking nightmare. I would, I would have believed if somebody had said, don't you remember cheddar goblin? I think I would have panicked and just been like, Oh yeah. Cheddar goblin. That was a real thing. Totally. Cheddar goblin <laughs> was a real brand. So he's watching this commercial and it is for the cheddar goblin who it's a, like a Mac and cheese brand, like a canned Mac and cheese. And they're, they're basically saying like, you know, the cheddar goblin brand has the most cheese and it's just a goblin like it's a, vomiting it's a cheddar puppet. mac and cheese. It's like cheese. a bad it's 80s a puppet just vomiting puppet. mac and cheese so everywhere. And we would have only eaten cheddar goblin mac and cheese. If it was available. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's this wonderful thing. It became, a, you know, something that got memed uh, out of this film, you know, in, in sort of a loving way. It kind of had the same vibe as like the too many cooks sketch on uh, yeah. Adult Swim that they did. You know, that same sort of like we're going to recreate this feeling. Um, so after watching the Cheddar Goblin commercial, he falls asleep. He has a an animated vision of um, Mandy you know, being torn apart. And then he wakes up and goes into this very 1970s bathroom and and that is where the 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 freak out that you you mentioned begins. Amazing. Uh, he begins tearing the rim apart. They obviously built they purpose built the set to accommodate this scene. And Cage, as he is wont to do, just goes for it. Like he he's drinking. It, there was vodka hidden in the bathroom, implying that this guy used to be an alcoholic. Again, nothing is said. Nothing yeah. is established. Like we have no flashbacks. Be. But you know what? this guy used to be an alcoholic, right? And there was vodka in the house that he hid in the bathroom, but he hasn't drank any of it. And now he is. And it's not just that he drinks it. He pours it over his wounds. Like, and then he just guzzles and screams. Like this, this dude, whatever. I mean, cause up until this point, as I said, cage's performance has been completely restrained. Like yeah. just nothing. And now, like, something has been unleashed, and and there is nobody in the world who can do something has been unleashed better than Nicolas Cage. But it's it's both rage and, and sadness and fury. It's all of those things. And, man, it's just, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit, you know, when I've taught film before, when you go back into the, the you know, 30s and 40s and you watch movies. There's a quality to the acting in those films that tends to be very over the top, right? Very overt, right? No questions about what the character is feeling or thinking or experiencing, right? We're, we're treating it like a stage play and in a stage play, you have to go big so that you can be seen in the back of the audience, right? Like it's, that's, that's just part of that acting style. And we've totally gotten away from that in film now. 
right? Naturalistic, understated, realistic emotions. Every once in a while, things will peek through, but that is not the norm. And then you've got somebody like Nick Cage who is capable of going big, of throwing things, screaming, pounding, punching. It's it becomes refreshing because we just don't see it anymore. And, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's so over the top that it's laughable. It's no, not. It's very it's really not. It's actually it was moving. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's watching a human being de be deconstructed from the inside out. And. And it's it, it truly is something special. Uh, and Nicolas Cage is one of those guys, as you said earlier, you you know you're going to get something from him. Like every movie is worth watching because you're going to get something mm -hmm. from him. And, and in this one, it, maybe it's the bathroom scene, but pretty much for me from the bathroom scene on this film is amazing. A night. It's a nightmare roller coaster of, of awesomeness. It's, it's truly something else. So I, I believe that Cosmatos and I, I think, you know, anybody who grew up with George P. Cosmatos as their dad is, is a student of 1980s action films. And so this movie establishes what they're about to do very quickly by having Nicolas Cage after, you know, the freak out has subsided. He's bandaged his wounds. He's put on the 44 shirt that she died in, um, which is obviously an indicator of, you know, what he intends to have happen to himself, I suppose. And then he goes to visit an old friend played by none other Bill than Duke. Bill Duke. Uh, a person that you've probably not seen in a really long time. Uh, Bill Duke is uh, very famous for his role in Predator, um, where he played, oh, what was his name? Gosh, my... He was um, Mac. Mac, there you go. Um, you know, the, the, he's the dude that used the shaving... <laughs> that's right. The dude that used the shaving razor, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that guy. Um, now he's he was in a lot of properties in the 1980s, um, a lot of action films, a lot of other films. But Bill Duke basically retired from acting, and they called him out um, for this role. And Cage goes to him because he has something that he needs. And here again is where things begin to unspool about who Nicolas Cage might have been in the past, right? Maybe he's not up in the logging logging in the mountains, you know just cause maybe some stuff happens. Yeah. Maybe some bad stuff. Um, but so he goes to Bill Duke to obtain the Reaper, uh, which Bill Duke Yay. does not want to give over <laughs> and he has to explain why he needs it. Uh, but the Reaper is a crossbow. Yeah. Like a badass crossbow um, of, of just incredible quality. Uh, the conversation between Cage and Duke is wonderful. Uh, the whole scene works. The one thing I really love about this film is is the pacing of it. Um, conversations develop organically and naturally. Nobody is rushing to get through the speaky scenes to get to the action scenes, which I think would have been a pretty typical way to save budget on this, right? So you bring Bill Duke in for a day. You have a quick scene between him and Nick Cage. We got Bill Duke in our movie. Thumbs up, move on. But they actually have this like intense, almost 10 minute long conversation in the middle of this movie 
where these two guys are sort of discussing maybe not 10 minutes, probably more like four or five, but you know, like they're talking about the ramifications of what is about to happen, right? Both the nece- the necessity of it needing to happen, right? The acknowledgement of that, but also he he's also the one that I guess provides a little bit of the exposition about the cannibal biker gang, yeah. right? Because he's the he's guy who them. knows these things. Right. You, you need one of those in mm-hmm. every movie. The guy who knows things. And Bill Duke is the guy who knows things. So we get some key exposition and then we get God, oh god this movie it's so good um nicholas cage apparently is also a weapons forger yeah and so he goes and he builds this like custom axe mm-hmm. that is the most like it looks like something that would have adorned the hero of an 80s it's, metal cover well, like this um, thing is beastly it's designed after uh a band logo there's, I, th- Is it? I think, okay, I, didn't know. Oh, I can't remember where they're from. It's the band called Celtic Frost. That's the F oh, okay. in their logo. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I had not seen that, well, that little bit of trivia. I like heavy metal, so I was Same, all about this yeah. movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he forges this axe, apparently in the, the F logo <laughs> shape of Celtic Frost. Because why not? And... Um, and and polishes it to a sheen, and, and he's gonna go, and he's gonna kill all of these people. And we're so um, excited for the death it's and such, the killing. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that's the great thing about taking its time on the first half of this film is that now that we've gotten to this point, we're so ready for it. We're like, yes, finally, bring it on. This is what these people deserve, and so. Um, you know, we, he basically finds the bikers as they're traveling through the forest and he uses the reaper to take out a couple of them. He's, you know, hunting them down. All of these scenes are great. Everything is bathed in red, seemingly, you know, from the taillights of the various vehicles and stuff. That's how he justifies everything being red, I suppose. But um, truly just an incredible visual look to these scenes. Um you know, there's there's danger, there's violence. I I really love. He takes out one of the bikers, right? Knocks him off his bike, and then he's going to run him down on the road in his truck. And the dude's so armored up that his truck like bounces off the guy. <laughs> it's insane, um, but awesome at the same time. Like you know, it's it's it sets up just how dangerous these dudes are and how you know well equipped, I suppose. Um. What did you think of the animated sequences, right? The, I, I think it's supposed to sort of represent some of Mandy's artwork, right? We're sort of seeing into her mind sort of how, he, it, almost like how she infected Red's mind with her view of the world, right? You know, the, the planets, the stars, you know, these things. Yeah. We get a lot of these little interludes when he gets knocked out or, you know, has a vision, so to speak. But what, what was your opinion of that? Because uh, I've read some people who said like it kind of took him out of the film because it was too far, but I I, I kind of disagree. I think um, it's pretty effective. I liked it because it. I mean, she was established as an artist, and she also reads those uh, paperbacks that have the kind of psychedelic covers. And then it also made me think of like heavy metal magazine. Yeah, and and the the heavy metal animated and, film. and the animated yeah. film. Um, so I kind of liked it, but 
I, I mean, it didn't, they weren't long enough to take me out of it. I mean, I guess if sure. they had been really yeah. long sequences, maybe that would have broken the the film a little bit in, in a bad way, but I don't know. They all seemed really short and um, I kind of liked it. I don't know. That's just me though. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely in the same boat. I, I think, um, because they always happen like when Cage is, is unconscious, right? So he's yeah. like, it's what he's seeing in his mind. And inevitably they all sort of end with, you know, Mandy rising to the surface and staring at him, like almost like it's a constant reminder of what he's lost and what he needs to obtain revenge for, right? It's almost like Cosmatos is just constantly reinforcing for us what the quest is and, and where Cage has to go and, you know, he can't stop kind of thing. So he gets captured by the biker gang um, after his truck wrecks and they tie him to a radiator and then they nail one of his hands Christ style to the floor. And um, the, the scene where the guy comes in and he like slashes at his chest with a knife and all case says is like, that was my favorite shirt. I love it. (laughs) It's just so good. I mean, it's, Again, it's it's like a this is a student of 80s action cinema, right? Like this is how 80s action cinema works. Like the the hero is truly truly screwed. Like he, there is there should be no way that he can get out of this, but you know that he will. And it's such a great scene. Um so he's figured out that there's like a loose pipe or something if he keeps working with it, he'll be able to get free. And he just keeps sort of playing with the guy sort of pretending like he's upset and he's crying just so that he can continue to, to loosen the pipe. It's such a great tense moment. Cause again, you know, what's coming. Like this is such an interesting relationship, you know, this sort of visual foreshadowing that, um, that filmmakers, you know, not all of them can do honestly, but Cosmatos seems to sort of breathe it naturally. Like he completely understands how to construct a scene like this. So Cage keeps the guy close, rips the pipe off the wall, and then pushes him down some kind of pit. Like there's some sort of bottomless pit just next to him. Cause of course there is. And he like knocks the guy down it and kills him. It's very satisfying. And then he rips a nail out of his own hand. I mean, it's it's just uncompromisingly. But you cool, know, I like right? that it wasn't over the top gory. No, there is gore in this film, but it's it's, it's not. It's a bit yeah, subdued yeah. for for right. its time, because I mean, that was a, that's been a big thing in films like this to have you know over the top violence and over the top gore. I mean, there's plenty of violence in this, but it's not insane. I don't think. No, I mean, like the final sequence, there's definitely some stuff, but it's not really shown in the way that, I mean, if you, if you're a fan of independent horror, like that has basically become the, the escalating factor in independent horror right now is how big can your, you know, physical special effects get, right? How far can they go? Um, and, and this film just, doesn't really it doesn't go to the same level it it doesn't need it like it's it's vibe as you mentioned is so specific that it's it's more than enough like you know because 
Cage realizes that he's in like some house that these guys have taken over and they killed the owners and like the owners, they like the dude's butt has been ripped off. Like they've chewed off his glutes. Like, you know, they're, it's it's gross enough without having to go to that next Yeah, we don't we don't level. need more than that, you know. We get it. Like I have an imagination. Right. I can use it. I don't need to We're be traumatized. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways that's what it is. It's it's trauma, right? It, you know, modern horror in many ways is about inflicting some kind of emotional or or physical trauma. And um you know, this film, while it, it is traumatic, like I said, there are moments in this film that I find genuinely difficult to watch. Most of the reason why it's difficult is not because the physical gore effects are so, you know, incredible. It's more about the emotional quality. It's the 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 depth of feeling that Cage is able to bring to these moments and the terror and horror that he's able to bring to his face that feels so real. Yeah. Um. It's, it's really... It's... This film is a tightrope walk. Like at any point, this movie could have either fallen into just over the top absolute insanity, but in some, but somehow he manages to thread this needle. Like I mean, the the next scene that Cage has, and and you know, again, we we're talking about this film not being especially violent, but the next scene is he fights the other, another cult member who's in there and the guy is wearing some sort of like, well, it's the prosthetic from seven is what he's wearing. Yeah. Right. Uh, it's that. And, and so the guy like attacks cage, that prosthetic gets stuck in the floor. Which like is funny. The, <laughs> and then, and good. then cage, you know, slices his neck open and, and then he's covered in blood. But but it's it's not like but it's frankly not even as gross as like the scene in Gone Girl where she kills Neil Patrick Harris. No. Sorry. Spoilers. Oh, yeah. Because if you because haven't seen Gone Girl shot, by now, seek help. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um but it's it's just one of those things like the way that Fincher chose to shoot that like you see every ounce of of blood drip out of that dude. And this one is shot from behind. The blood is just sort of, you know, shooting over Cage's face and he is initially resistant to it. And then he embraces it. Like, he, you know, he lets it cover him. And it's just this, you know, remarkable scene. Cause again, it becomes more about Cage's insanity in this moment than anything else. Yeah. And, um, you know, then the guy that he knocked down the pit apparently didn't die. So he ends up fighting him again. And, and the scene sort of ends with Cage, Gosh, what does he say when he's fighting the dude with the shotgun? It's like, this is my shit or something like I got. I don't remember what it is, but it's again, it's that over the top Nicolas Cage performance that only he can bring. And it and he makes it work. That's what's so glorious. It could be so wrong, but it feels so right. Yeah. And. I mean, just absolutely incredible. And. Yeah, like you're in my shit or something like that is what he says. And he just murders that guy too. And it, I, I don't know. This this feels, again, I, I think this is a byproduct of the John Wick era. This is somebody who is writing that sort of ultimate revenge story. But this feels, whereas John Wick is very polished and very good and I love those movies. This is raw in a way that I feel like, again, if somebody was actually going to go on this kind of rampage, this is closer. This is more akin to what that would be. 
and it's it, it just works for me um so he he kills the bikers he indulges in a bit of their cocaine and a bit of their peanut butter lsd <laughs> um which now will fuel you know the remainder of of the film he has a you know there's a couple more big fights again this film is just shot so smartly right like they're just in a rock quarry right which apparently you know i'm sure you can film on for like 12 bucks you know nobody's gonna fight you and they just set some cars on fire they set up some lights in the background and it's enough right what more do you need and it's it's so intelligent it feels so doable right like this movie feels doable it feels like you could make this movie with enough like you know spit and grit and enough time and it's it's just so cool i i don't know it, it's got such a great vibe so um you know he's got his badass axe back he i guess one scene i did want to talk about is the the scene where he goes to the the chemist right is that what he is the, yes. he, he's like the the drug manufacturer and a this this actor is fantastic he's been in so much stuff um uh, I think he was even, I watched uh, Kingsman the other day and he had a short part in that too. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just kind of everywhere. Um, Richard Brake uh, is his name. And so I think he was also in the Doom movie. Am I right about that? Yeah, he was the weird guy in the Doom movie. <laughs> the so weird he's, guy he's, he's in the Doom movie. The weird movie. guy in the Doom movie. I mean, they were all weird, <laughs> I guess. But he was the weird guy in the Doom movie. But he's been in, in uh, Peaky Blinders, which I think is what sort of juiced his career back up again. But it's another one of those, you know, guy who knows things sort of scene. Um, he has a tiger in a cage. We get this wonderful scene, this, this beautiful visual metaphor of, the tiger being let out of the cage, right? So of course we're meant to connect that with Nicholas Cage's shirt. You know, when Andrea Riseborough was killed earlier in the film was a tiger and like the, that they've, they've unleashed him, right? He is the beast, if you will. And it's, it's just such a, again, it's really good in move in movies like this. We don't often get things like that. And it's, it's really, really well done. And so that kind of leads us to the final confrontation. Again, this is not a complicated film in terms of story. It's mostly character go place, kill people. And I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. But so he, he takes a four wheeler, I guess that the chemist had, and he goes to find the, the children of the new dawn at their church, which is this thing that they've built, you know, out in the, uh, the rock quarry. As you do. As you do, and he sets up the final confrontation. He throws caltrops down. Don't see enough caltrops in movies, people. <laughs> caltrops are great. See a lot of people being like, "Oh, we need to shoot out the tires of the vans." Like, no, you don't. They make things just, to do that, and you throw it on the road. <laughs> put down the caltrops. <laughs> um, so he 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 captures their their van, and then like the main guy who was all weird through the whole thing, and he just. He just savagely beats him to death, and it's wonderful. It's um, just... I, whenever you have a movie with with chainsaw fights, I just you just you've won. I want to see more chainsaw fights in movies. Yes, um, that he, was so uh, satisfying. <laughs> yeah, like because that's where this is headed. He he gets like a nice car, like a seventies car. And, and he just starts quickly dispensing because these cult members, like that's the thing. And that's what makes this so satisfying. I know we've talked about this before, but I'll reiterate it here. Like 
in my opinion, you know, I'm not a video game designer, but I play a lot of video games. You know, I, I play one on TV. <laughs> um, but but one of the greatest things you can do as a video game designer is you actually make the second to the last boss hard. And then the final boss, while, you know, still challenging, you don't want to be a walk in the park, you make that fight easier because that's the pinnacle moment where you, as the player of the game, should say, I've I've mastered this, right? Um, I have reached the pinnacle of my skills. And and that's kind of what's happening here because these cult members are at this point are literally no match for what Nicolas Cage has become. He is a nightmare on two legs mm-hmm. that is going to do nothing but absolutely savagely murder these people really without <laughs> a ton of effort. And and it's it's it is what the greatest 80s action movies were capable of creating, right? It's like Commando, right? Like, because when he, when Schwarzenegger shows up on that island or whatever, you know, like he's about to murder like 150 guys and, and you just, you're totally cool with it. You're like, yeah, bring it on. And and then at the end he kills that guy in the weird crocheted sweater (laughs) shirt and, and it's, it's over and he gets his daughter back and everything's fine. Now, like this movie's not going to do that. Like this isn't a get the dog, you know, get the the kid back and everything's fine kind of movie. But this is a movie that is all about the the sort of cathartic revenge of a person that's been truly, truly wronged by another set of human beings. Um, So, uh, as you mentioned, one of the big fights here at the end is is the chainsaw fight. I love this. Um, There's a guy who has like. A four foot long chainsaw. Yeah. And there's well, a guy yeah, who in, has. They're in then, logging you know, country, so they have access exactly. to all of these ridiculous chainsaws. And and Red is himself a logger. We see him effectively utilizing a chainsaw at the very beginning of the film, so we know that he can do it. Set up and pay off people. It works. It's effective. And you don't have um, to belabor it. Like, you know, you no. show a quick three second shot of him chainsawing a tree. We got it. <laughs> You got it. He can chainsaw. Um, so they end up fighting, and and it's such a great thing. Again, they're just out in a quarry. There are lights set up. It's not complicated. He's, you know, it, it's it's just it's really well done. And when he kills this guy, um, it, because they he the fight starts and Cage can't get his chainsaw started, right? So he's like trying to start it and he can't do it. And then he finally gets it started and he gets it knocked out of his hands and the other guy picks it up and he's, you know, doing the eighties movie villain thing where he's like just revving it and screaming. And then cage grabs a chain, just a giant chain, hurls it around his throat and then pulls him down onto the active. Beautiful. It's and just it's somehow as I, <sighs> as I've said, this mm. movie does not cross into gross territory. At any point, like no, that happens on screen, but it's not horrifying when it does. And I really appreciate no. when movies can do that. Like they don't just turn into exploitative gore fests. Right. It's a lot of blood. I mean, there's definitely a lot yeah. of blood, but you don't you don't see his stomach being ripped open. Yeah, you don't, there's no like you know, nothing, none guts of that, falling you know? out or anything like that. Oh, speaking of guts falling out, I oh. do have to watch this. Have you watched <laughs> have you watched the new kids in the hall season yet? I have not. It's on my list okay. to watch. It's on Amazon Prime. It's it goes by very quick. They're just half hour episodes, so there's there's not a ton. But um, episode three, if you haven't watched any of them, I would say start with episode three. 
Uh, well, maybe not to start there, but but you definitely need to watch three because three has two of the best sketches in the whole series. One is called Doomsday DJ that just stars Dave Foley. And it's it may be the greatest sketch the kids in the hall have ever produced. And I'm saying that as a dude who spends most of his days wondering where finding Tony is. ways, <laughs> wondering where Tony is, what he's doing, <laughs> who he's with. <laughs> But also trying to work. That's my pen in the conversation. <laughs> my pen. My, like, my, my pen. pen. It's my part. Pen. Did I leave my, my pen, pen there? <laughs> <laughs> um, but Doomsday DJ is is one of the greatest. It's definitely the greatest Dave Foley sketch ever. Nice. Um, but it's it's truly great. But there's another sketch in there with Mark McKinney and Dave Foley, where Mark McKinney is like a huge Shakespeare fan. And, and so he spins, he like talks, he comes into his like study and he's got a bust of Shakespeare and he like talks to it. He's like, oh, I wish we could hang out together, Shakespeare. You get me. And he says all these obscure Shakespeare quotes to it. And then one night there's a storm and a lightning strike hits the bust and it becomes <laughs> William Shakespeare played by Dave Foley. But he's a bust. So he doesn't have arms and he doesn't have the bottom half of his torso. <laughs> So like he just starts squirting blood <laughs> out of every every open, you know, like he doesn't have arms. His guts start falling out. Like it's it's hilarious. It is so, so funny. Oh, as I'm so glad they're back. It's, it's really good. Oh man. It was a good season. Like I'm not gonna say it was the most even, but I mean kids in the hall were always peaks and valleys. Like there were always sketches that were just immediately iconic and classic. And then there were other ones that just sort of ran their course and they were very funny, but you know, you're not going to hold on to it, but there's a, there's a good amount of stuff in this one. That's uh, I think is worth it. I really hope they get to, they've already said, even if they don't get a second season with Amazon they're they have no intention of going away again. They they're going to continue to produce work and, you know, distribute it wherever I guess. But um, I, I think there's been a popular enough reaction to it that we're going to see a lot more. And I, I hope we do. I really do. But in any case, um, so guts falling out, it's very gory and very gross, but you know, Mandy doesn't go as far as the kids in the hall. Always keep that in Good mind. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Um, so everything culminates inside of the children of the new dawns church, which is this very eighties, like pyramid with a cross in it. Yeah. Like it's, it's just lit so well. It looks so cool. And you know it was done practically, which makes it even better. It's it's just great. Um, and so Cage, at this point, Cage has not really had dialogue in quite some time. It's just yells and grunts. And I, I just love it, right? Because any other film, I feel like there would have been this long, there would have been some sort of monologue, right? Some sort of like, oh, this is what we've become, you know, something. And he just doesn't. He just doesn't do it. He he just marches his way towards the inevitable conclusion that is the death of these people. And it's it's really satisfying. Like it's it's that sort of archetypal 80s satisfying, right? Where it's like just the unstoppable juggernaut that is the hero. And the I guess he he runs into the old lady. I don't think he kills well, it, it's implied that he doesn't kill her. She's like, no, you know, he trying kills to, her. He cuts to, her head off. He put to, that's right, right. Like, I guess we can't don't really see him do tell that. Tell what he does until he confronts what's his face. Right, and then he like tosses the head into that the room. Like, yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, because there's like this moment where you feel like he's gonna maybe maybe he's gonna bend. Maybe he's gonna even though she maybe he won't deserves it. Oh yeah. I mean, well, I shouldn't. I'm sorry, Lord. (laughs) Please don't strike me down. (laughs) Forgive me, Lord, for my opinions about death and murder. I'm just talking about a movie. (laughs) It's just a silly movie, but yeah, he, he like tosses the head in, and then that's when like the cult leader knows that he's just screwed. And I love it because this guy has no chance. Like he's literally a joke. Um, I mean, he is a failed folk singer. Like, there is nothing that he can do to stand up against this guy. Nothing to offer. And and he's still trying to, I guess, to to like convince him that you know he has some kind of value. And and um, well, another kids in the hall reference. He 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 squishes his head. Yep. <laughs> uh, just squeezes it closed. And uh, if there is an over-the-top bit of gore in this, it's, it's probably it's this, that. But, you know, you want to see it so bad. Mm-hmm. You want to yeah. see yeah, this I mean, guy nobody's... get his comeuppance. <laughs> yeah, nobody's upset about it. And uh, and then he sets the church alight, just going to burn it all down to the ground. Not, uh, not just, you know, end these people, but end everything that has ever had to do with them. And then they burn that beautiful set. Because that's what good filmmakers do. You burn it when you're done. It's fine. You don't keep that. You don't put that in your backyard. You fucking burn it. And it's great. Uh, and that, and I mean, and that's that's pretty much it. He sort of like goes back. Um, we get a, a sort of scene at the end, you know, that I, I presume is the moment that they met, right? Is yes. that how you read yeah. it? That he's reflecting back on on the first moment he met Mandy. Um, cause he's like in the car, the church is burning behind him. And then, you know, we sort of bounce to this. It's obviously supposed to be a concert, probably a metal concert. I, I um, felt like it was implying that he's just never going to recover from this ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like this, this is it for him. Like he has, this is the eighties action movie ending where the hero is not redeemed the world is not better. He's just, he may continue like he will survive. That will is probably too strong in him, but he's never coming back from this. Yeah. Like the life that he had before is, is gone. There's that great shot at the end. And this was one that showed up a lot, you know, when people were talking about the film, cause it's, it's supposed to be him kind of having a vision of her, um, riding shotgun, riding shotgun, you know, smoking a cigarette. And then it cuts to the reverse POV of him and he's just you know, covered in blood. He's got the bulletproof vest on and he's just smiling at the top of his, you know, he's just like smiling so big, but he's destroyed. Uh, and then so the final shot of the film, as as we see the car drive away, is it, it pans up and it's not our world, but, you know, this fantastical landscape of uh, undoubtedly of Mandy's design. Um, just a, an incredible, incredible visual to end the film on rife with meaning and interpretation about this man's worldview the the interpretation of his his existence you know as this outside observer uh it's incredible like i said i i I know we've basically just been saying that for the last like hour that this movie is incredible but it truly is like it is a kind of uncompromising experience and so unique to this individual so unique to this story and brought to such incredible fervorous life 
by Nicolas Cage yeah. in, in possibly one of the finest performances of his career, even though it is, I, I he maybe has 12 lines in the movie, 13, you know, but he brings such a, an incredible quality to it that it's undeniable. Uh, truly, truly a special film. I celebrate the man's entire catalog. Yeah. Again, <laughs> you just can't really go wrong with Nicolas Cage. You just can't. Uh, he's going to give you something every single time. Yep. Uh, even like his bad movie, you know, like the oh, well, what was I that said, Philip K. Dick adaptation I think he did I've next? Said this before. You know, Nicolas Cage is the best part of any Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> mm -hmm. regardless yeah, of the film true. that you're going to watch if he's in it he's the best part of the movie absolutely and as yeah. good as beautiful as this movie is as visually stunning as it is he is still the best part yeah he brings something incredible to this uh to this film and so does andrea riseborough like i said i know i, I kind of dissed her a little bit earlier with the no, discontinuous great. swinton thing but she's fantastic in this like she is truly I mean, we're truly, only truly, calling her that because she's uh, beautiful <laughs> yeah like i said it's not an insult believe yeah, yeah. me uh, i think tilda swinton's incredible um but yeah it's just uh this is a top to down banger uh from front to back there's really nothing bad or out of place in this film which is so rare in films of this scale um you know there's usually some sort of compromise they should be like well you know it's only a six million dollar budget but not here. Yeah. Like Mandy is a truly great. incredible experience. Again, if you have objection to visceral violence, gore, I mean, we could get a little bit into the issue that, you know, this is the classic revenge story and that it is the, the, you know, the fridging of the wife that leads to the revenge story for the man. Eh. And so there are some, some issues there, but again, I feel I'm like fine with tropes existing if they're executed well. If they're executed well, precisely. And Cosmatos here, again, is playing in a really specific 80s sandbox, which most people who talk about John Wick don't talk about that fact, that John Wick is successful because it, too, is playing in the 1980s revenge thriller sandbox. It's a, it's a Death Wish film. Yeah. But it's a Death Wish film that instead of it being Charles Bronson's old war buddy who gets killed by gangbangers, it's a puppy. Like that's yeah. that's the twist that makes John Wick work for more people. But it's the same premise. I mean, it, that is the premise of Death Wish three. Like that's it. Yep. <laughs> and so, like, it, this is the same type of film playing in the same sandbox. But the way that Mandy is a constant presence in this. It's not the loss of her necessarily that drives Cage in the film. It is the fact that he will never be able to grow with her again. Yeah. That's the way I interpret it anyway. It's it's not that she's gone and I'll never have her again. It's not that kind of like weird possession. It's that they were both healing together. Like yeah. that's what the first 30 minutes of this movie is. It's that it's two people who are broken for various reasons healing together. And now he can't. He's his process, his progress in that is stopped because she was the the catalyst for change in his life. And maybe that's just a roundabout way to say the same thing. It probably is, but it's a much more sort of beautiful and eloquent reason for Nicolas Cage to do this instead of just, Oh, my wife got killed. Now I gotta go, now I gotta go <laughs> kill the men that did it. You know, gotta break out the Trans Am, get out the 44. And, you know, like, it's not that it's, it's something much deeper and more beautiful. And the fact that the, that his world, like she, she's changed the very nature of his perception of reality. 
and and the fact that she's no longer there is is it leaves him bereft of of his own growth but also hers and being able to see her change and grow too and um it's just it's a beautifully crafted story i i cannot wait to see what panos cosmatos uh cosmatos does next uh, i think he he may be i you know he's he's never going to work perhaps on the scale of somebody like alex garland um you know maybe he's never going to get his disney call <laughs> I, hope I, I hope not i hope not i hope not you know kevin you feige to be like panos Panos, I saw that Mandy. Do you want to come oh make god. Fantastic Four? Oh my god! <laughs> I hear John Krasinski's anxious to work. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I want Panos Cosmatos to keep making ten million dollar awesome movies that attract incredible talent because they want to work with incredible talent. Yes. And, uh, and if that's what he can do, then by golly, I'm going to show up every single time. Same. Uh, cause man, uh, cause, uh, beyond the black rainbow is also an incredible film. Yes. Like, I don't want to make it seem like Mandy's is only good. Like this dude has made two movies and they both, they both slap front. <laughs> they're front to back slappers. Like they are incredible. Um, is so, uh, incredible recommendation from, from me. I, I, I imagine you are the same. I am. I I loved this movie. Um, I just I love. It's it was one of those movies that when it finished, I was like, why can't every movie be like that? You know, I have I go into this intense mourning phase after I see a good movie. And I'm like, there'll never be another yeah. movie this good. Um, yeah, but, it's like reading a great book, you know. But he'll he'll release another one, and it's gonna be that good. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely so. Um, it's it's exciting. Like I said, I, I, I anticipate what he does next because I think he's he's one of the most exciting guys working today in terms of the the understanding the totality of a film and, and executing where all of those parts are working together. Um, it's it's truly something else. So 100 percent recommend for Mandy uh, hunt it down. Uh, I don't know if it's streaming anywhere um, like I said, it's primarily owned. It's probably on Shutter, if I had to guess. Looks like a version of it, at least, is streaming on Plex's free streaming service right now. So, um, and this is you know early June of 2022. So, if you uh, have access to Plex or if you want to watch it there, uh, it looks like you can enjoy the film uh, on Plex's service with a couple of ads. So that might not be too bad either. Hooray! All right, so uh, if somebody wants to uh, hop on the horn, hop on the old Twitters, right? Communicate some of their feelings about Mandy to you. Where can they do that? Uh, you can find me at my Nicholas Cage fan page, which is Baskinator on Twitter. <laughs> Nicholas Cage fans dot biz, yeah, um, or or dot X Y Z or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I like dot biz. Um, it sounds dot biz professional. Works. Um. And uh, of course, you can get a hold of me at T Baskin on Twitter, or you can get us at F Peace Theater if you'd like to follow us both for updates there. And of course, you can email us at our Gmail address, uh, failurepeace at gmail.com. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for hanging out while we gushed all over Nicolas Cage and Panos Cosmatos and the film Mandy. But this is certainly one that, if you haven't seen it, it is well worth your time. A revenge thriller to cap all revenge thrillers, perhaps. All right, so uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye.